Page 33. Protection from Retaliation. Discrimination statutes include a provision that prohibits the employer from retaliating against an employee who attempts to aid the reinforcement of a statute. The legislative purpose of these provisions is to encourage the employee to use the protection of the statute by reporting a violation and enhancing its reinforcement. Title VII has retaliation provision that is similar to those of other statutes. Retaliation is defined by the courts as an unlawful practice of an employer whereby the employer discriminates against the employee for participating in the enforcement of a statute or a right. The application of these principles can be found in Donnellan v. Fernhold Corporation 794-F2D-598-11th-CIR-1986. The employee filed a discrimination complaint with the EEOC alleging that she was denied the sales representative position because of her sex. Three weeks later, she was discharged. Four days after her discharge, she filed an additional retaliation charge with the EEOC alleging that she was discharged in retaliation for filing her original claim. The court held that there was no gender discrimination but that she was charged in retaliation for filing a claim. In order to demonstrate prima facie proof of retaliation, the employee must show that, first, she or he has engaged in statutorily protected activity. Second, the employer has taken an adverse employment action. Third, there is a casual connection between the protected activity and adverse action. Fourth, the employer would not have taken the adverse action but for the employee's good faith belief the practice under the law was wrongful and he or she was seeking to enforce it. It is then the employer's burden to show that the adverse action had nothing to do with the filing of the charge. If the employee's conduct was unlawful, excessively disloyal, hostile, disrupted, or damaging in the employer's business, then she or he will have difficulty claiming protection under the status retaliation clause. In Donnellan, there was no question that the plaintiff could mean the requirements to get into court. It then became a question of why she was discharged. The employer, according to the court, could not give an articulated clear and consistent reason for the discharge. Each witness gave it a different reason. Inconsistency on the part of the employer is always damaging in a discharge case. The court put great weight on the fact that the plaintiff was discharged a month after filling the gender discrimination charge. The Supreme, the Supreme Court extended the reach of Title VII's prohibition against retaliation beyond the workplace in Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway Corporation v. White 126 SCT 2405-2006 when it found that the employer had retaliated against White, a female track laborer, by resigning her to a less desirable job following her complaints of sexual harassment and later suspending her for alleged insubordination. 
The court determined that the anti-retaliation provision does not confine the actions and harms it forbids to those that are related to employment or occur at the workplace and that the employer can retaliate by causing the employee harm outside the workplace. In another case, an appellate court found an employer guilty of retaliation when it filed false criminal charges against a former employee who had complained of discrimination. Sometimes the employer will give it clear reasons for discharge, but they are not very persuasive. Reasons such as generally poor work performance, Failure to cooperate and gross its subordination usually will not be accepted by the court as legitimate non-discriminatory reasons, but will be considered a pretext for retaliation. The, re the reason for the discharge must stand on its own. If the employee would not normally have been discharged for other offenses committed or if other employees committed the same offenses and were not discharged, then the courts could include, conclude it was retaliation. This also applies to former employees under Title VII. It must be established that the employer's treatment was intentional in order to show that retaliation has occurred. Showing that the employer treated the plaintiff differently from the way the firm would have treated employee, other employees under similar cir circumstances is usually considered intentional. The most important element in the defense of retaliation cases is that the discipline or employment decision is applied to all employees when the situation is the same. The mistake that the employers often make is to treat a person who has filled a charge either more leniently or more strictly. Either policy is troublesome in retaliation charges. The more lenient policy reaches the point of no return, when enforcement takes place, retaliation is alleged. The overly strict policy will cause retaliation charges unless it is consistent. Proper procedures for discharge are the best defenses of retaliation charges. If the employer's discipline, grievance, and discharge procedures are uniformly applied, violation of a statutory retaliation provision will seldom be found. Labor Unions Labor organizations are also covered by the provisions of Section 7 and fall under the jurisdiction of the EEOC. A labor organization is defined under Title 7 as any organization, agency, or employee representation committee that exists to deal with the employer. Any union conference or joint board that is subordinate to a national or international labor organization is also subject to the Act. The labor organization must have at least 15 members for coverage under Title VII. The union cannot exclude from membership or otherwise discriminate against members because of race, color, religion, disability, gender, national origin, or age. It cannot cause or encourage the employer to discriminate against an individual. A labor organization cannot maintain segregated locals or discriminate as to referrals for acceptance in apprenticeship training programs. Labor unions have a special duty under Title VII to represent fairly all employees apart from the requirements of the National Labor Relations Act or NLRA. 
they must attempt to eradicate any discriminatory practices for more than 30 years. The NLRA was the only legislation concerned with labor management relationships except for the some occasional disputes under the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1972 when Title VII was amended. A third party entered the relationship. The EEOC could sue both the union and the employer for discrimination. The problem immediately arose as to had, who had jurisdiction, the NLRB or the EEOC, for example, the National Labor Relations Board or NLRB that enforces the NLRA will refuse to hold a representation election if a union was discriminated under Title VII. The employee's right to strike over discriminatory practices of both the company and the union is supported by the NLRB after a grievance is processed. For the purpose of this section, it is important to review only two basic principles concerning the role of the union in discrimination cases. First, the Supreme Court long before Title VII was held that a collective bargaining agreement between a union and an employer that discriminated against blacks is a violation of the union's duty of fair representation. All cases of employees must be represent represented. Indeed, the courts have refused to enforce an unfair labor practice when a union discriminates. Second, since the employees have elected the union to be their bargaining representative, they cannot discuss discrimination matters directly with the employer, but must go through the union. Page 35. If there is evidence that the union approves of employer discriminatory practices, the employees must still go through the union before going to the EEOC. When the employees went out on strike over discriminatory practices without going through the grievance procedure, it was not considered protected activity. Therefore, discharging the employees was not an unfair labor practice. The court said that although employees have a right to be free from discrimination under Title VII, the right cannot be persuaded at the expenses of orderly collecting bargaining. When employees are represented by a union, the employer should not entertain complaints about discrimination unless they are discussed with the union first. The NLRB or NLRA and the courts strictly hold the employer to this rule. Regardless of whether the union is discriminating, the employers are represented by the union and therefore they must act through their chosen representative. Harassment in the Workplace Closely related to the problem of overt discrimination in the workplace is the matter of the harassment of employees based on their gender, race, national origin, and so on by employer representatives or fellow employees. Sexual harassment in the workplace arose as a legal issue in 1970 and by the end of the decade became recognized by the courts as discrimination prohibited by Title VII. In 1980, the EEOC issued guidelines concerning the problem of sexual harassment. More recently, racial harassment in the workplace has been identified as problem area by the EEOC. Definition and Control Harassment in the workplace is a violation of Title VII when a member of a protected class, 
is subjected to a hostile environment or unwelcome attention unrelated to job performance. Title VII does not have a specific provision prohibiting harassment as such, but the courts and the EEOC have so interpreted the statute. For example, racial harassment would be found where a black employee is subjected to racial slurs and pranks or other bigoted acts such as the display of a hangman's nose by other employees or supervisors. Age-based harassment where a supervisor consistently makes derogatory statements about older workers and disability-based harassment where an injured employee is teased and ridiculed by a supervisor. An employer's attention solely to sexual harassment is short-sighted. The ridiculing, bullying, or abuse of employees in any protected class increasingly creates legal exposure. Reluctance of Management Harassment situations often involve sexual harassment or sexual relations. Until recently, most managers preferred to avoid interference or involvement with sexual relations between employees, either within or outside the working relationship, so long as they did not interfere with work performance or did not occur on com company time. If management became aware of sexual advances, it would often attribute them to simple attraction between the sexes, allowing the parties involved to resolve the matter. If in extreme cases correction was needed, the matter was handled on a confidential and individual basis. Many managers reasoned that because of the personal nature of sexual matters, dealing with the matter openly could create more problems than it would solve. Another reason for management's reluctance is the sexual advances are often difficult to define or prove. Further female employees are frequently reluctant to bring that no matter to attention of the employer for fear or embarrassment or provoking an adverse reaction from supervisor or co-worker. Page 36. On May 7, 2009, the Los Angeles Times reported that, due to unresolved charges of misconduct, 160 teachers and staff were suspended with pay. These charges included allegations of drug abuse, sexual contact with students, harassment, and drug possession. The article highlighted one teacher who stayed home and collected $68,000 a year in salary after allegedly harassing both students and teachers. The school district has already spent $2 million in legal fees. The superintendent has since retired, exhausted, he said, by the battle to fire the teacher. In fiscal year 2008, the EEOC received 13,867 charges of sexual harassment. Males filled 15.9% of those charges. The EEOC resolved 11,731 sexual harassment charges in fiscal year 2008 and recovered $47.4 million in monetary benefits for charging parties and other aggrieved individuals, not including monetary benefits obtained through litigation. Legal Basis Sexual harassment is a form of gender discrimination. 
but it is distinguishable in that the conduct involves pressure to provide sexual favors or the creation of environment and tolerate unwelcome sexual advances or language. Where discrimination because of an employee's sex involves an adverse employment decision, it is a violation of Title VII. Discrimination based on gender and sexual harassment can be distinguished in that discrimination is usually a single act, whereas sexual harassment usually involves continual conduct. The reason sexual harassment is unlawful is that Title VII prevents one sex from being favored over another when a male favors a female and not other males. There is a violation. By the same principle, a female can sexually harass a male, and the courts have no so held. A male sexually harassing a male is unlawful because females are not given the same attention. The same would apply to females harassing females. The question of same-sex harassment was directly addressed by the court in Oncal v. Sundonor Offshore Services, 523 U.S., 75, 1998. In Oncal, a male oil platform, Rostebot, was forcibly subjected to sex-related humiliating actions by other employees, two of whom were supervisors. Oncal reported these actions, but the employer was unresponsive to his complaints. He eventually quit because of his harassment and filled a com filed a complaint under Title VII. The court held inciting Harris v. Forklift Systems Incorporation, 114 SCT 376-9093, that the critical issue is whether members of one sex are exposed to disadvantages terms and conditions of employment that members of the other sex are not exposed to. Accordingly, the statute covers sexual harassment of any kind and the same-sex harassment is actionable under Title VII. Bisexuals and transsexuals are unlikely to be protected by Title VII because of the difficulty in determining which sex is being favored. Where a transsexual who claimed to be female at the time of hire was denied use of female restroom facilities, the employer discharged for misinterpretation. Because the employee was a male in the employer's opinion, the court said discharge was not a violation of Title VII. The act is not intended to cover transsexuals. If the sexual harassment would not have occurred, but for employees' sex, it is harassment because it constitutes an unequal condition of employment. However, the conduct must be sufficiently persuasive to alter the conditions of employment. In deciding whether there has been sexual harassment, the EEOC and the courts will look at the facts as a whole and the totality of the circumstances. Some courts will consider evidence of the compliant sex life to determine whether the conduct constitutes sexual harassment. Reverse Sexual Harassment The EEOC Guidelines 29 CFR Section 1604.11 also deal with what might be called sexual harassment in reverse. In this type of case, an employee climbs the corporate ladder at the expense of other qualified persons by giving sexual favors to the decision maker. The qualified employees passed over for promotion have a claim for sexual discrimination. 
The employer may avoid litigation from the person promoted, but at an exposure from those who were passed over. Third-party actions Third parties who have been affected by sexual harassment normally cannot sue, although some courts have found an exception in hostile environment cases. In Broderick v. Ruder 685F SUPP 1269 DC 1988, a female attorney was allowed to sue, although little of the harassment was directed at her. Several federal courts have found strict liability for third-party complaints if man management creates the hostile environment, whereas other courts limit strict liability to quid pro quo cases. The Civil Rights Act of 1991 amended Title VII to provide for compensatory and punitive damages as well as jury trial. In addition, the plaintiffs can recover expert witness fees. Damages in sexual harassment cases are expressively limited by statute. If there is a conflict with a state statute, the federal statute will prevail. When the employer has a knowledge of harassment and fails to do anything about it, the courts have overwhelmingly held the employer liable under Title VII. If courts find a blatant example of inaction, they will allow a negligence action before a jury and permit the jury to award punitive damages. The Meritor Case Many questions about what is or is not sexual harassment were cleared up in the first case on the subject to come before the Supreme Court. In the landmark case of Meritor Savings Bank, FSB, Vincent, here and after called Meritor, 106 SCT 2399-1986, the plaintiff alleged that Taylor, a vice president of the bank, had asked for sexual relations with her. At first she refused, but later she yielded out of fear of losing her job. She testified that she had sexual relations with a manager from 40 to 50 times in the previous four years, both during and after business hours. She never reported her action to any of the manager's supervisors, nor did she attempt to use the complaint procedure that the employer had established. She also alleged that Taylor had fondled her in front of the other employees and had followed her into the woman's restroom when she went there alone. He exposed himself to her and even on occasion forcibly raped her. These activities ceased after she became involved with another man. About a year later, the plaintiff took sick leave for an indefinite period. Three months later, the employer fired her for excessive sick leave. She brought suit alleging sexual harassment during the four years of employment. The district court held that she was not subjected to sexual harassment, but merely was involved in a broken love affair. The appellate court reversed the decision, holding that the action was a violation of Title VII, even though no job opportunities were involved. The court imputed notice to the employer because the manager obviously knew about the harassment. The manager was representative of the employer, therefore the employer knew or should have known about the sexual conduct. The Supreme Court is a unanimous decision for the plaintiff held that a violation of Title VII is predicted on two types of harassment. First, those involving economic benefits, quid pro quo. Second, those where a hostile environment is created. 
the prov provocative dress and speech of the alleged victim and the voluntary participation in sexual affairs did not preclude a finding of the episodes were unwanted therefore unlawful the court said that the employer is not relieved of liability in all situations even though there is announced policy against sexual harassment or by failure of the victim to utilize existing grievance procedures page thirty eight the court was not willing to impute knowledge in all cases in which a supervisor was involved as had been determined by the appellate court and the eeoc guidelines Rather, it stated that the fact and circumstances in each case should determine whether the employer had notice, but the absence of the notice did not necessarily insulate the employer from liability. Many state courts impute knowledge under the common law doctrine of respondent superior. The meritor decision summarizes all previous appellate court decisions on sexual harassment and clearly defines sexual harassment as unwelcome. It goes further in saying that the voluntary participation in sexual activity does not necessarily mean that the activity is welcome. The court invalidated prior EEOC guidelines that stated that knowledge can be imputed where the supervisor is involved. The court thus reversed several appellate court decisions that had upheld and imputed knowledge guidelines. However, the employer can be still liable based on imputed knowledge. This landmark decision stated that in order to find sexual harassment, there must be three elements. First, the conduct must be unwelcome. Second, the employer must have knowledge, either actual or imputed. Third, the outcome must either involve job opportunities or the creation of hostile environment. Tangible Employment Action Subsequent to its meritor decision, the Supreme Court further defined the distinction between hostile environment and quid pro quo harassment in two 1998 case Burlington Industries, Ellerth 524 U.S. 742-1998 and Farringer City of Boca Raton, 524 U.S. 775-1998, both involving sexual harassment by supervisors. In these cases, the court found that a quid pro quo, tangible employment action, occurs when an employer takes in significant adverse employment actions, such as termination, demotion, or undesirable transfer against an employee based on employee's refusal to submit to an employer's request for sexual favors. In these situations, the employer is always responsible for acts of its supervisors and is, bar is barred and raising an affirmative defense such as lack of knowledge of the request for sexual favors or the existence of a no-harassment policy. Hostile Environment A Definition the court is considering whether there is a hostile environment must evaluate the conditions existing before the plaintiff was hired the background and experience of the plaintiff as well as his or her co-workers and supervisors and the totality of the physical environment however if anti-female an animus is found the court will usually find hostile environment whether a hostile environment exists must be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. The court in Rabidou Osceola Refining Co. 107 SCT 1983-1987 noted that in some work environments, 
sexual jokes and vulgarity are extremely common, and Title VII was not meant to bring out a transformation in the social mores of American workers. The remarks may be annoying, but if they are not so offensive as to have seriously affected the plaintiff, there is no hostile environment. In Davis v. Monsanto Chemical Co., 858F2D3456CIR 1988, the court rejected Rabidou by stating that there are only two requirements for hostile environment. First, repeated activity. Second, management tolerance. No interference with work performance was shown. Some courts say that sexy posters create a hostile environment, whereas others disagree. In summary, there is no clear-cut definition of hostile environment. The necessary elements of definition are the employee's declaration for the environment is hostile and unwelcome and the employer's knowledge of that declaration. The employer can usually be relieved of liability by directly addressing the problem. Hostile work environment Absent tangible employment action Allegations of sexual harassment are considered to be hostile work environment cases. The significance of this distinction is that in hostile work environment cases, the plaintiff must prove pervasive conduct on the part of the employer. The employer may raise affirmative defenses by showing that is exercised reasonable care to prevent sexually harassing behavior in the workplace through its policies and procedures, and that the plaintiff failed to avail herself or himself of those procedures. Unwelcome Conduct The court recognized that a person might be a victim of sexual harassment even though he or she participated in or condoned acts of a sexual nature. It is difficult for an employer to know whether an intimate relationship is unwelcome or what the point is will be welcomed. It appears that only way that the employer will know is if the employee reports that the advances are presently unwelcome. The ruling on admissibility of evidence concerning a complaint's sexual behavior may help because the employer can argue that due to the behavior a reasonable person would believe that the conditions were not entirely unwelcome. The more evidence that there is of a personal relationship between the plaintiff and the alleged harasser, the more difficulty the plaintiff will be in showing that the conduct was unwelcome. The Supreme Court in Harris v. Forklift System, Inc. used a reasonable person test now found in the majority of courts. Opportunity or Hostile Environment Again, there are two types of sexual harassment quid pro harassment resulting in tangible employment action and hostile work environment. Quid pro tangible employment action occurs when an employee is forced to choose between agreeing to superior sexual demands or forfeiting a tangible employment benefit, such as promotion wage increase, leave of absence, or continued employment. Because quid pro version is easily identified by its objectivity, where a little problem in determining whether or not it has occurred. Hostile environment claims are more difficult to prove. They are more subjective in that they do not involve a specific employment benefit and can involve a co-worker. 
hostile environment is defined by the EEOC guidelines as an interference with the employee's work behavior or a creation of an offensive work environment. The Meritor case merely reaffirmed the appellate court's position that hostile environment is a violation of Title VII and that both provocative dress requirements and verbal statements could create a hostile environment. It did not specifically define hostile environment. The Supreme Court's finding in Harris that a reasonable person standard should be used resolved a conflict among the, cir the circuits where both the reasonable person and reasonable woman standard were used to find that a hostile environment existed. The employer to be safe uses the reasonable woman standard. A hostile environment can be defined as one that a reasonable woman would find unwelcome. The court further held that this is not necessary, that the plaintiffs show a tangible physiological injury, although some prior decisions had indicated that it was necessary, it said beginning at 63FEP cases 227. Page 40. Conduct that is not severe or pervasive enough to create an objectively hostile or abusive work environment, an environment that that a reasonable person could find hostile or abusive, is beyond Title VII purview. Likewise, if the victim does not subjectively perceive the environment to be abusive, the conduct has not actually altered the conditions of the victim's employment and there is no Title VII violation. But Title VII comes into play before the harassing conduct leads to a nervous breakdown so long as the environment would reasonably be perceived and perceived as hostile or abusive. The Supreme Court took a middle ground in Harris. It reaffirmed its earlier holding in the Meritor case and did not reverse any case. However, it took a latter Eighth Circuit case to clear up confusion over the plaintiff's burden. In COP v. Samaritan Health Systems, 13F3D264, at 269, the court outlined the five elements in plaintiff's burden. First, the plaintiff has membership in a protective group or class. Second, the plaintiff was sub subject to unwelcome sexual harassment. Third, the harassment was based on sex. Fourth, the harassment affected a term, condition, or privilege of employment. Fifth, the employer knew or should have known of the harassment and failed to take proper remedial action. The plaintiff in Meritor was not specifically required or asked to give sexual favors as a condition of promotion. From the testimony, her promotions were based on merit. The employer liability was therefore based on hostile environment and not quid pro quo harassment. The court held in this situation the manager's behavior constitutes a hostile environment. Management cognizance. Imputed employer knowledge is one of the cloudiest areas of the meritor's decision. Surveys show that only a small percentage of employees who are being harassed will report into the employer. The EEOC proposed guidelines explicitly state that the employers are re responsible for all the acts of sexual harassment in the workplace where a supervisor is involved, unless it can be shown that the employer took immediate action to correct the problem.
The Supreme Court was widely split on whether they should adopt the EEOC guidelines, but the majority held in demeritor that the employers are not strictly liable for acts of supervisors. The interpretation has been modified by Ellerth and Farger decisions as noted earlier. In Meritor, the court had no trouble in finding the knowledge was imputed because the grievance procedure required the plaintiff to go to the person involved. The employee was not encouraged to complain, the court imputed knowledge. From the dictum in the case, the court indicated that if there had been a different grievance procedure and policy, knowledge would not have been imputed. The Meritor case cleared up many issues. A hostile environment is a violation under Title VII. Sexual harassment must be unwelcome. Acrescience does not always mean that it is welcome, and unless the employee can report to a member of management other than the person involved, knowledge will be imputed. However, if there is a hostile environment without specific proof, that work performance is affected. And if the proof is required that the employee is actually offended by the environment, the determination of a hostile environment will be made by the totality of circumstances on a case-by-case -case basis. Page 41, Age Discrimination in Employment Act. The Age Discrimination in Employment Act Adea of 1967 makes it unlawful for employers to discriminate based on age with respect to compensation and terms, conditions, and privileges of employment. Additional unlawful acts under Adea include discrimination or retaliation based on the assertion of rights under the act, publication of notices, or advertisements related to employment that express an age preferences or limitation and the forced retirement of non-federal employees. The Act and its amendments contain the following basic provisions. First, it forbids employers with 20 or more employees including public employers, employment agencies, and labor organizations with 25 or more members to make employment decisions based on a person's age when the person is over 40 years old. This is interpreted to mean that preference cannot be shown within the protected group. An employer could not express preference of a 45 to 55 year old person as this would discriminate because of age. Second, it invalidates compulsory retirement for pension plans in the private and public sectors. If the inability to perform the job can be shown, or if an executive in a policy-making position, or if the person has a pension above $44,000 without Social Security, the employee could be subjected to compulsory retirement. Third, it authorizes a jury trial of any issue of fact. Fourth, it expressly authorizes employers to discriminate against older employees under certain circumstances. Overt age discrimination in employment and mandatory age-based retirement has largely disappeared in the private sector since the passage of ADEA. Exemptions Under ADEA, an employee is subject to compulsory retirement if he or she is an executive in a policy-making position or has a pension over $44,000 or if unsatisfactory performance can be shown. 
The ADEA provides that if an employee has been employed for two years preceding the retirement date in a high policy-making position, this employee would be exempt from the compulsory retirement restrictions of ADEA. The issue in all these cases is what constitutes a policy-making decision. The leading case states that the person must perform policy-making duties for at least two years before termination. Level of salary is not the determining factor. The court looks at the duties that the employee performs when considering whether or not an executive can be retired at age 65. The employer must consider the job content, the reporting relationship, and whether or not the employee participated in policy-making decisions and had discretionary powers. Also, ADEA does not cover the total employee relationship. Defending Employment Decisions Since ADEA is concerned with workers who are over age 40, many unique problems are created that are not found in other anti-discrimination laws. For example, ADEA is the only anti-discrimination law that allows jury trial. Since the average age of people selected to serve on a jury is over 40 years old, and almost all jurors are now or were at one-time employees, there isn't much sympathy for the employer. It is also human for a judge to sympathize with the other worker since his or her age is usually over 40. The employer has another built-in head wind when dealing with the work older worker. Due to the length of service, the worker's salary is usually higher than the market price for the same skills, and these skills may decrease with age. When the labor costs have to be reduced, the older worker can be replaced by a younger person who may be as well qualified at less cost. Page 42 the Age Discrimination in Employment Act inhibits management's desire to perpetuate the company by training the prom promoting younger workers. At one time, the older worker could be retired at 70, so at least there was some room to move up the younger worker, but with the age 70 limitation removed, management must now prove poor performance before the older worker can be replaced. This is often difficult to do involving a worker with 30 years of service. It should be noted that the burden of proof requirement for showing a prima facie case is similar to the burden required in other disparate treatment cases. However, a showing of age discrimination does not require that the individual replacing the older worker be younger than 40 years. Some companies are still using subjective evaluations such as personality traits to measure performance. It is therefore not surprising that the age discrimination lawsuits are the second largest type of all anti-discrimination lawsuits filed with the EEOC. Bringing in new blood is considered a violation of ADEA when it is accompanied by age-related comments. In Wilson v. Monarch Paper Co. 939-F2D-1138-5-SIR-1991, fifth sir such an action was considered constructive discharge. The court upheld a jury award for punitive damages. Age as a factor in decision-making 
The idea affects every employment decision where the employee involved is over age 40. To establish a prima facie case under IDEA, the employee must show that the job was performed satisfactorily and that he or she was dismissed and replaced by a younger person, not necessarily under age 40. The employer must then show the age was not a contributing factor. Disparate treatment claims under IDEA have been interpreted identically to claims brought under Title VII. The court has held the disparate impact theory may be applicable under IDEA, but an employer may defend against such claims by showing that reasonable factors other than age created an apparently disparate impact. A unanimous United States Supreme Court decision held that an employer does not violate that the IDEA by firing an older employee to avoid pension benefits that would have vested by virtue of the employee's years of service. The plaintiff had been employed by Hazen Paper since 1977 as its technical director. In 1986, at the age of 62, and a few weeks before his pension would have been vested, the plaintiff was terminated for doing business with competitors of Hazen Paper. The plaintiff sued Hazen Paper for violating the IDEA and the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, or ERISA. On his IDEA claim, the plaintiff claimed that the age had been a, a determinative factor in the decision to fire him. A jury rendered a verdict in favor of the plaintiff on his IDEA claim and specifically found that the company had acted willfully so as to be liable for liquidated damages under 29 U.S.C. Section 626B. The district court, however, granted the company's motion for judgment notwithstanding the verdict as to, be, to the finding of the willfulness. In upholding a day of liability, the appeals court considered evidence that Hazen Paper had fired the plaintiff in order to prevent his pension benefits from vesting. The appeals court also reversed the district court's judgment with respect to willfulness finding sufficient evidence to establish the company knew that its action violated the IDEA or showed reckless disregard for that matter. However, the United States Supreme Court reversed the appellate court holding that an employer does not violate the IDEA by interfering with an older employee's pension benefits that would have vested by virtue of the employee's years of service. The court reasoned that the employer decision was wholly motivated by factors other than age. Page 43. Age may be ignored if the employer can demonstrate just cause for discharge. In a case where a 56-year-old repeatedly ignored the specific directions of his supervisors, the court held that discharge was not because of age, but for insubordination. The inability to satisfactorily perform a particular job and demonstrate lack of competence in performing a job or other factors that could justify a discharge or transfer. However, performance and incompetency de de determinations are often subjective when age is involved. Therefore, the burden of proof is greater than in traditional misconduct situations where objective facts are more easily obtainable. 
It is advisable in incompetency situations to have objective measurements of unsatisfactory performance before a decision is made involving an older worker's performance. When an employee is not performing satisfactorily, the company has to either transfer, terminate, or tolerate the unsatisfactory performance. Given the possibility of prevailing in lawsuit, or at least gaining a seizable settlement, employees may allege age discrimination where none exists. Jury awards in age discrimination cases can be substantial. In Wilson v. Monarch Paper Co., cited earlier, the jury awarded a plaintiff more than $3 million, mostly for pain and intentional infliction of emotional distress for age discrimination. The company reduced the job of a vice president and assistant to the president to janitor. This precipitous demonstration was apparently intended to humiliate the plaintiff. The court noted that the age-related comments, bring in new blood, made about the plaintiff by the defendant's official, an absence of criticism of the work performance costs when to affirm the age discrimination verdict. When the employer can show that the decision to terminate was not based on age, the termination can be defended. Employer actions do not always create an inference of age discrimination. Assignment of work to younger employees, hiring a younger person to replace an older person, and comments about age by persons in a non-decision-making position are not per se a violation. Evidence that there were attempts to improve performance and that the plaintiff was warned about unsatisfactory performance is a strong defense to review the employee's contention that the decision was based on age. In Barber Hands Corp. 715 F2D 213 5th Sir 1985, the plaintiff had been a salesman for 20 years. He was moderately successful in meeting in sales quotas, but according to the company, was deficient in other aspects on his job. Performance, not age, was the company's justification. The company often offered subjective evidence that the employee did not institute merchandising techniques with his customers and would not follow management policy or instructions. The evidence showed that the supervision had several meetings with the employee in order to correct the problem. The employee acknowledged criticisms and expressly resolved to do better, but he didn't. This evidence lent credibility to the subjective evaluation. The employee was terminated and replaced with a 28-year-old person. The jury found for the plaintiff the employer moved for a judgment notwithstanding the verdict. The lower court granted the employer's motion and the circuit court in affirming stated that there was substantial evidence of poor performance so that if allowed to stand the jury verdict would be miscarriage of justice. The U.S. Supreme Court denied review. This is a good example of a case in which there was evidence of trying to correct the poor performance. Age could not have been the factor in terminating, and the jury had no basis for the award. Nonetheless, the employer still likely had substantial legal fees in defending its actions. Sometimes an employer will argue that an older worker was replaced by a younger worker to reduce costs. 
the courts will consider this as a factor if there would be severe economic consequences by retaining the older worker. Page 44. Early Retirement Programs It is not a violation of IDEA if the employee voluntarily retires. Many companies offer early retirement incentives to employees over 55 years of age and with a specified length of service, 10 or more years being the most popular. Early retirement options have even been presented to workers younger than age 55 during economic downturns. Since early retirement programs avoid layoffs or involuntary terminations, early retirement plans have gained wide acceptance among employers and employees also like them. Most employers underestimate the number of employees who will accept the incentives and take early retirement. In making early retirement offers, the employer often faces the loss of skills and management know-how that cannot quickly be replaced. One way to bridge the gap between training new employees and the loss of the old is to make a consulting agreement with early retirees. Consulting agreements are very popular not only to bridge the gap but also to provide the retiree with additional income while the adjustment is being made from full salary to retirement income. Employers often try to cap exposure to a day of lawsuits by the use of waivers and releases. The Older Workers Benefit Protection Act of 1990 or OWBPA was designed in part to put to rest the judicial confusion over waivers and releases. Almost all early retirement programs require the employee to sign a waiver or release. The legal status of a waiver is not identical to that of a release. In a waiver, the employee waives all rights. In a release, the employer is relieved of liability, but no rights are given up. A waiver under ADEA is enforceable in the courts if there is no showing of coercion. Enforceability is uncertain in the case of release. It depends on how the release is worded. Waivers under the Older Workers Benefit Protection Act The following requirements apply to waivers under the OWBPA. First, the agreement must be in clear, concise language signed by the employee. Second, the agreement must clearly state that the employee is waiving all rights under ADEA. Third, the employee has 21 days to decide whether to accept a waiver and week to rescind after signing. Fourth, the waiver must state that the employee has consulted an attorney. Fifth, the employee can waive rights or claims only in exchange for something he or she does not already have. Six. Although not required, there should be evidence of negotiations as to be benefits of retirement. The Older Workers Benefit Protection Act provides that no waiver agreement may affect the EEOC's rights and responsibilities to enforce ADEA, and an employee may not waive the right to file a complaint under ADEA unless the employer strictly complies with the statute. These requirements are designed to assure the EEOC that the early retirement was knowingly voluntary. Signing a waiver does not prevent the employee from later filing a charge, although his or her right to recover any damages may have been compromised by signing. 
When signing a release, the employee is prevented from recovering damages. The employer must be cautious not to imply any form of coercion when an early retirement plan is accepted by the employee. In one case, the employee stated he would not have signed the agreement had he thought the waiver was enforceable.